how precious this evening is to be able to read the moving account of our Lord's trials and suffering and death and to know that He bore all of that so humbly and silently, not only for the glory of His Father, but for our salvation, that we may be drawn to Him forever. Would you stand with me one more time this evening here and I'd like to read our text and we'll be looking at mainly verse 21 this evening and then we will ask the Lord to bless this time. Let's read together verses 16 through 21, 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 21. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, this evening we we come together and we've opened Your Word and with thankful and at the same time grieved hearts and hearts broken by Your love, and hearts of worship, we have read of Your Son and how You have sent Him to reconcile us to Yourself. Father, it is indeed an amazing thing that You have done to reconcile sinners to You. Holy God, how great is Your grace How great is Your glory. How great Your mercy and Your love. We pray that You would enable us through Your words this evening to see it a little bit more clearly. Move us, Father, to worship and gratefulness. And if there is someone here this evening that has not yet been reconciled to You, that You would summon them through this Word. And that they would hear the urgent call to be reconciled to God. And that they would obey and rejoice with us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Have you ever been in a relationship that you value deeply? Maybe your spouse or a child or a friend. And something 
something very, very disturbing, serious came in your relationship and someone was greatly offended. And maybe you were the one who did that offense. And you tried many different angles to try to restore that relationship. But it seemed impossible. And then what a relief when that friend came to you and said, I'm willing, let's restore our relationship. And the joy that would follow that. Well, this is just a small thing to think of the comparison that this text brings to our attention of sinners being reconciled to God. This text is absolutely amazing with the grace of God. Look at verse 18 where Paul writes, all this is from God. All of what? All this grace coming to us who through Christ reconciled us to Himself. He brought us near. God brought us near. Us sinners through Christ. And that's really what I want to talk about tonight. This word reconciliation appears, I think, more in this text than maybe any other New Testament text. What is reconciliation? What is this reconciling work that God has done? And really that, that, that word in here makes us wonder not only what does reconciliation mean, but why do we need it? Do you know that you need to be reconciled to God? Well, there's a couple of texts I want to read for you that maybe will help us with more of this definition. Ephesians 2, 11-19, this text has the word reconciliation as well, and you'll see it, but I want you to see the words also that surround the concept of reconciliation. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that at that time, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in this world. But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in the place of two and so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. And through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father, so then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Something wonderful has happened in the course of this text. And I'll point it out in just a moment. But it all centers around this reconciling work that God has done for sinners 
through Christ. Look at another text. For in Him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace through the blood of His cross. And you who were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in the body of His flesh by His death in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before Him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister, you can see the definition of reconciliation in these, in these texts. Reconciliation is a positive change in a relationship. It's the adjustment of the differences. The restoration of favor and joy and delight and unity in that relationship. See, we, between us and God, there's been a horrible strain on the relationship. And that's really a minimizational word. We've been, like this text says, separated from Him. We were alienated from Him. We were estranged from Him. We were far off from Him. And then, through this reconciliation, we were brought near. We have access. We're now called fellow citizens. We're members of the household of God. We're one in Christ. And that reconciliation was needed because of of something dreadful that was bearing down upon us before reconciliation. We were objects of wrath. We were, the relationship between us and God was filled with hostility. You saw it here as well. Hostility. Hostility from God to us and us to God. And that hostility has shifted. Now what do we have between us and God? Peace. There's peace. There's not hostility. There's peace. And there's joy. Because the issue that created the separation, the issue that created the hostility has been resolved. And so that's the question then as we move forward in our thought process. What was the issue that created the separation to begin with between mankind and God? Well, this text says it this way. evil deeds. We were hostile in mind toward God doing evil deeds on the part of man, right? All mankind has sinned. Mankind has rebelled against God. We are ungodly. That's what broke the relationship between us and God. God never sinned. God never moved. He was not the offender in this relationship. We were the offenders in this relationship. He was the offended. God and His law of commandments. Just like it says here, the law of commandments and the expressed ordinances, these are eternally holy, righteous, just, and good. Good for us. And yet mankind has willfully, rebelliously, continually violated God's good law. 
That is offensive to God. Rightly so. And we have in so doing offended God infinitely. And God is, God is infinitely worthy of our utmost love. Is He not? And so to refuse Him that love is to offend Him infinitely. To refuse Him what He deserves. And just as God commanded His creatures to love Him above all, so God's law demands our eternal death. Separation from God. Punishment to be poured out upon the one who does not love God above all. That's, that's the hostility. We love our sin God hates our sin. Therefore, all mankind in this sinful, rebellious state is separated, alienated, estranged, far off. Enemies, in fact, Romans 5 says. We're enemies of God. Objects of God's wrath. Objects of God's hostility. And therefore, that's what makes us to become in great need of being reconciled to God. And to be reconciled to God, the issue that separated mankind from God to begin with must be dealt with justly. Human sinfulness must be dealt with, but it must be dealt with justly. Human rebellion is the issue between God and mankind. There has been a cosmic collision between the holiness and law of God and the sinfulness and rebellion of mankind. And the only way to deal with the issue so that man can be reconciled to God is to completely satisfy the righteous and just demands of God's law and at the same time change and purify sinful man. That's the only way sinful man can be reconciled to God. And think about the impossibility of us doing any of that. Can we reconcile ourselves to God? Can we make all the wrongs right? Not a chance. Only God can do that. This is the main idea that we have to look at this evening is the call of our text. Be reconciled to God. That's, that's Paul's call in this text. Be reconciled to God. Do you have that need tonight? Do you know that you're reconciled to God? Has God's righteous demands for you been met? Has His hostility and His wrath against your law-breaking been taken care of? Every human being is born into this world alienated from God because we're born sinful to begin with, just like we sang about tonight. And if you've not yet been reconciled to God, do you realize that you're still hostile toward God and God is still hostile towards you right now? Think of that reality right now. If you're not reconciled to God, God is angry with you. And whether you admit it or not, you do not want to obey God. You love your sin instead. That's hostility. And you need to be reconciled to God. And I want to show you from God's Word tonight how you can be reconciled to God. 
If you've already been reconciled to God, it is my hope that this message will bring you a sense of unspeakable joy to see what God has done for you in a, in a, in a fresh way and to be filled with humble gratitude toward, toward Him. Be reconciled to God. How does God reconcile sinners to Himself? Here's the verse I want to focus on. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. This comes right on the heels of that call, be reconciled to God. And it's really answering how we can. And I want to rearrange the words a little bit. I want you to see them as the original language orders them. He who knew no sin, on our half, on our behalf, He made Him to be sin. So that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. The first thing that is absolutely necessary for God to reconcile sinners to Himself is the Son's sinlessness. Number one, we have to have the sinless Son of God. You cannot be reconciled to God without a sinless Son. Number one, the Son's sinlessness. That phrase comes first in the original language. He who knew no sin. Who is that? That's Jesus. The eternal Son become man. Now, when you think about the sinlessness of the Son, what comes to your mind? First, I want you to think about His sinlessness in terms of His being God. So, letter A, if you wanted to take some more notes under your outline there. Being eternal God, the Son is sinless in His divine nature. Being eternally God, the Son is sinless in His divine nature. He's sinless because He's God. How do we know that? John chapter 1. I want to read to you a few verses from that text. You're welcome to turn to any of these. John chapter 1 identifies who the Son is, the eternal Son. In this text, His title is the Word. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. So you have the Son who is with the Father and at the same time the Son is God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And then down to verse 9. The light. The true light. That's the title for the Son of God. As true God. As He comes into the world, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He's the Word. He's with God. He was God. He made all things. He is the source of life. He is the light of man. He is the true light. And he, he was coming into the world. And in verse 18, we read also, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side. So no one has ever seen the Father, but the only God at the Father's side. That's the Son. He has made Him known. And John picks up that title of light in his letter. 
And so we read again of the Son very similarly to, that, to, the, to the first part of the Gospel which he wrote, 1 John 1.1, that which is from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the Word of life. There He's the Word. The life was made manifest. He, he came to be with us. And we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life with which, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That's the Son. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to also to you so that you too may have fellowship with, with us And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. But look at verse 5. This is the message that we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you, that God is light. And in Him is no darkness at all. So I want to make those couple connections for you. And you can follow this so well. Jesus, the Son, is the Word, the eternal God. And He, being God, was Creator and the light of the world. He is light. And John says here that God is light. And being light is, a, is, a, is an image of purity and holiness. In Him is no darkness at all. So being eternal God, the Son is sinless in His divine nature. He is God, the text tells us. And He is light, the text tells us. And therefore, He is sinless, holy without darkness at all. And being God, John also tells us in John 17 that He shared the glory of the Father. John 17, 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that Your Son may glorify You since You have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And then in verse 24, he says something similar. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. To share the glory of the Father is to be sinless. And to be so loved by God is certainly to be sinless. So being eternal God, the Son is sinless in His divine nature. Absolute purity, absolute holiness, Absolute glory. Absolute light. The Son is. In whom dwells no darkness at all. No sin. And yet the eternal God, the Son, took on flesh and became man. But as He became man, did He then take on sin in terms of His own behavior and will and actions and nature? No. Being man, He was still sinless. So let her be, being perfect man, the Son is sinless in His human nature. Have you thought through the sinlessness of the Son who became man? He was sinless in His birth. Luke 1.35 says the Holy Spirit conceived the Son of God in the womb of Mary and therefore the one to be born to her 
was called holy. He was sinless in his birth. He was sinless in his youth. Luke 2, 41-52 speaks of him at 12 years old being about his father's business. And at the end of that section, it says, and he grew in wisdom and in stature. And what? Favor with God and man. Being the perfect favor and pleasure of God. Why? He was sinless in his youth. And, and he was sinless in his baptism. Matthew 3, 13-17, we hear the voice from heaven saying what? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What is that but a, but a declaration of the perfection of the Son? Sinless in his temptation. When Satan came to him and threw at him everything he could give. Matthew 4, 1-11, and did he fall then? No, he was sinless in his temptation. He resisted perfectly. Again, sinless in his transfiguration. Matthew 17, 1-8. The Father again speaks from heaven. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. He was sinless in his public ministry. And the text that came to mind was Luke 20, 20-26, where the the best of the religious leaders of the day came to Jesus and asked him questions to try to trip him up in his words. Did he? Did they? No. He answered everything perfectly. They couldn't find a way to trap him. So and finally, they stopped asking him questions. <laughs> sinless in his public ministry. Sinless in the garden. Like we read about tonight, Luke 22, 39 to 44 Again there, I believe Satan was pressing Jesus with a great temptation to avoid the cross. Because there's only two times in Jesus' life where we know of that angels came to minister to Him. And one was in the wilderness when He was tempted and the second time was here in the garden. So certainly He was being pressed to His very human limit. And yet He overcame that temptation too. Not my will. Yours be done. Sinless in the garden. Sinless before Pilate. Remember how many times Pilate said what? I find no fault in him. Herod said it. Pilate said it. No fault. Sinless. And the best they could do for a, a title of crimes above his head was what? This is the king of the Jews. It only told the truth. No crimes done there. And even when the Jewish people were trying to accuse him of something, they had to resort to false accusers. And there the story got mixed up as well. He was sinless before Pilate. Sinless in his trial. Sinless at his crucifixion. I want to turn to Luke here. And we read this earlier, but let me I just want to show you, point out again the sinlessness of Christ, even in His crucifixion. Luke 23-34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, and they cast lots to divide His garments. What am I bringing out there? When He was reviled, <laughs> He didn't revile in return. When He suffered, He didn't threaten he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. No sin came from Jesus' mouth. In fact, what came from his mouth was 
Father, forgive them. Luke 23, 41. And we indeed justly, the criminal said, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but what? This man has done nothing wrong. A true statement from the mouth of the thief next to Jesus. And 47 and 48, even as he died, now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, they went away even affected by what they saw. When they saw what had taken place, returned home with an expression of grief beating their breasts. The sinless, innocent Son of God. Isaiah 53, 7-9. Again, when He was cursed, when He was reviled, He was silent. No sin in His crucifixion. Philippians 2 is the summary of it all. This sinless son became man. Being in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Sinlessly obedient, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. There is the sinless son of God. Though Through his sinlessness as a man, Jesus earned the perfect pleasure of his Father. Jesus the Son was a pure delight to God the Father as a man. And he earned through his sinlessness the endless joys of eternal life with God as a man. But he also earned something. He earned the right to die as the Lamb of God in the place of sinners. Only a sinless man could die in the place of sinners. If he was a sinner, he'd have to die for his own sin. But being sinless, he earned the right to die as the Lamb of God in the place of sinners. In order for sinners to be reconciled to God, we need someone to mediate between us and God. One who is both God and man, but also one who is Sinless. We have to have that. No other way. One who has in every way and completely pleased the Father. One who has earned eternal life for Himself by absolute perfection. One who is willing and able to be our advocate and our substitute before the Father. One who makes the Father happy and at the same time takes our hostility upon Himself. One who will please the Father perfectly and propitiate the Father's wrath completely. That's what we have to have if we're going to be reconciled to God. Nothing we can provide for ourselves. Only something God has provided for us. There's only one who holds such credentials. The sinless Son of God, Jesus Christ. The reconciliation of sinners to God is based upon the sinlessness of Christ. Now, Take it one more step, as this verse does. Not only because of the Son's sinlessness, but also we are reconciled to God. Sinners are reconciled to God by the Father's doing, by the Father's making. 
The text says, he who knew no sin, on our half, on our behalf, he made him to be sin. This he is the Father. And this he is the one who knew no sin, the Son. The Father. The Father made the Son to be sin. The very thing that is necessary to deal with the issue so that we can be reconciled to God. The sin has to be dealt with. Think about it from the Father's perspective for a moment. The Father, He made Him to be sin. Who was it that from eternity delighted to rescue sinners from divine wrath? The Father. Whose plan was it to rescue those sinners by a sinless substitute that He would bring forth who would be sacrificed in their place? It was the Father who had this plan. Who actually crushed Jesus under the weight of human sin and divine wrath? Who was it? The Father did that. All of this the Father did. Please don't misunderstand the cross by thinking that the persons of the Trinity are somehow butting heads at the cross. Working against each other in our salvation. It's not like the Father couldn't stand to save us and Jesus is just like, please. No, this is the Father's doing. And He offers the Son and the Son is willing. The phrase that comes next in the original language is that phrase, in our behalf. He, the Father, made Him, the Son, to be sin. For our reconciliation. Think of the Father's nature. The Father's nature is the nature of a Savior. And it's, He is holy. I want to read to you. And Can you turn with me? Exodus 34. Exodus 34 is a magnificent display of the glory of God. And you see a couple of things here that, that, apparent, that, that look like a paradox, but they are resolved in Christ. Exodus 34.1 says, The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourselves two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze upon opposite the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and stood in his and took in his hand two tablets of stone. Now, look at this. And look at the nature of God. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him, with Moses there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger. This is, this is the very nature of God. Merciful. Gracious. Slow to anger. 
abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's God. He loves to forgive. He loves to to do away with sin and transgression. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. Now, what's amazing is without an apparent break, he goes right on to say, but who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. When Moses heard all this, he quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. So the question is, you look at this text and you see, you know, God is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and loves to forgive and at the same time doesn't clear the guilty? How is that possible? How can he be forgiving and not clear anybody of their guilt? What's the answer? God made him to be sin. Somebody else got our guilt so he could forgive us. This is the Father's nature. He planned this whole thing so that he could be both merciful and gracious and loving and forgiving and still be just and not clear guilt as if it didn't exist. Micah 7 Shows us God is the same way there. So cover to cover, right? Exodus to Micah. Here's the God. <coughs> Excuse me. Here's the God of the Old Testament. Micah 7, 18. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because He delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins in the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. How can God do that? He is that. He is full of steadfast love and mercy and kindness. But how can He forgive our guilt justly? There's the Father's nature. Think of the Father's plan. He promised it from the beginning. Genesis 3.15 I will put enmity between you and the woman. Your seed and her seed. He will crush your head. You will bruise His heel. Isaiah 53. Right? He bore our sins. Like it says, God took our sins and Place them on Him. This is, this is the plan of how, to, how God can continue to be just, how God can be gracious and loving and forgiving and pass over transgression and still be just and not clear the guilty. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Christ, the Lamb of God, the servant of Yahweh, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. 
and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. That's how. God takes the sin of those He will forgive and be merciful and gracious toward, and He puts them on the Son and clears us justly by condemning the Son in our place who became our sin. Acts 2 and verse 23 says the same thing. All in a sentence. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This is the Father's plan. And what's the, the act? The Father's act was to actually accomplish this. Matthew 27 45 to 54 is the crucifixion. Or like we read tonight, the crucifixion. And what was God doing in that? Romans 3, 25. Christ. God put forward Christ as a propitiation by His blood. An appeasement of His own wrath by the blood of Christ, by the death of Christ. God put forward Christ. Isn't that an amazing way to look at it? God put Christ forward as a propitiation to be received by faith, to show His righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. Or Romans 8. Romans 8, verse 3 and 4. For what God has done. See, this is God's act. This is the Father's act. What God has done. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. And God did it by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh. We couldn't keep the law. right? We couldn't be perfectly righteous like the Son was. And we couldn't absorb all the law's demands. There's no way we could die eternally for our sin and survive it in a sense. We would be forever away from God. But God did it by sending His own Son. And He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In verse 32, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? God the Father put forward His own Son, laid the guilt and sin of sinners upon Him, and crushed Him under His wrath. In our behalf, the Father made the Son to be sin, credited to Him our sin, declared Him to be our sin, and then poured out His wrath on Him so that He could pour out His mercy and grace upon us. That's justice and mercy at the same time. The only way, the issue that separates us and God can be dealt with so that we can be reconciled to God. The reconciliation of sinners to God is of the Father's making. Only His. Only He. Only He can do this with us through the Son. Not only because of the Son's sinlessness, not only because of the Father's making, but also through the sinner's credit. The last phrase. So that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. This is what is spoken of in this final phrase. Our credit, something gets credited to us. Something is declared to be ours. It's the righteousness of God. 
Romans, again, Romans 3 speaks of this so beautifully. Romans 3, 21. But now the righteousness of God being perfectly right under God's law. There's a way we can be that. It's been manifest apart from the law, meaning apart from our own efforts at trying to keep the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, it's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. The sinless Son's righteousness can become ours for all who believe. There's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, are declared righteous by God, by His grace, as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as that propitiation by His blood, to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that God the Father might be just, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Or Paul says it like this in Philippians 3. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Or 1 Peter 2.24. He Himself, Christ Himself, bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Or 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. That's reconciliation. The sinless Son takes our sin. We have His righteousness by God's legal declaration. That's how sinners are reconciled to God. That's how God dealt with the issue that separates sinners from Him. He puts forward His own sinless Son to stand in the place of sinners. The sinless Son has credited our guilt. The sinless Son is crushed on the cross under the wrath of the Father who sees His own Son as the sin of sinners. The sinless Son's perfection is credited to undeserving sinners. Only then will God the Father draw sinners near to Himself. Only sinners who are in Christ are reconciled to God. That's why it says that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Because sinners in Christ have had their guilt credited to Christ. Sinners who are in Christ have had the Father's wrath diverted from themselves to Christ on the cross. Sinners in Christ have been forgiven by the Father. Sinners who are in Christ have had credited to them as a gift the Son's righteousness along with His well-earned reward of eternal life. Sinners in Christ alone have been called sons and daughters of God. And that's the only way that the issue that separates sinners from God is dealt with justly. That's the only way that sinners are reconciled to God, forgiven by God, loved by God, as dear children. And this is certainly God's doing by grace alone and not by human doing. 
just previously in our text. Paul writes, 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19, all this is from God. He does it. Now, as we close, a final question must be seriously considered by each of us. Which sinners are reconciled to God? Which sinners are credited the righteousness of Christ? And the answer is simply this, those who are in Christ by faith. That's which sinners. Only those who are in Christ, though, by faith. Maybe we could say it this way. Those who say yes to God's message of reconciliation. Just like the text says. Verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Those who say yes to God's message of reconciliation. In other words, if you're going to say yes to this, be reconciled to God, here's what's assumed in that. You agree with God about what brought the separation. Right? You agree with God about what your sin then deserves. And that God is right to be hostile with you. You've got to start there if you want to be reconciled to God. If you don't agree with your sin and His hostility, His righteous wrath about you, well then, there's no, there's no starting point for your being reconciled to God. Those who are reconciled to God say yes to God's Son for who He is. The sinless one. They say yes to God's work of salvation that He put their sin on Christ and tortured Him on the cross in their place. They reject their own efforts knowing that all of this must come from God and God alone. To say yes to this message implies these things. That you receive the righteousness of God that is offered in that final verse. That that is your life and your way of salvation. His righteousness, not yours. And you rest in the perfect saving work of Christ on the cross. The one who is in Christ by faith says yes to that living in fellowship with God as Savior and Lord. So will you? Are you reconciled to God? And if not, will you say yes to this tonight? Be reconciled to God. Will you cry out to God in humble repentance and faith toward Christ? You may feel at times as you hear something like this that you're incapable of such a response to God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Maybe you've thought that you're too far from God to respond to such an exhortation. And if you just consider yourself in that equation, you're right. It's beyond you. But considering God, He is able. Because look, Look what it says in verse 16 and 17. Paul says, from now, on, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. We once regarded Christ according to the flesh, but regard Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I love these verses. You can't tell who's going to be saved by what they look like. Did you know what Christ would do and be by what He looked like? 
No, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. One from whom people hid their faces. That's not, that's not God's Messiah. Oh, yes, it is. And you couldn't tell that by his flesh, by his body, by what he looked like. And you can't tell who God's going to save by what you look like on the outside. Because if you're in Christ, God makes you completely new. He can give you a new heart with new desires that lean into God's message of reconciliation and trust in Christ and Him alone. So ask Him to. He can create that in a moment, in a second. Be reconciled to God. And you who have already been reconciled to God, what a magnificent grace this is. That such an act would be done for us by God is absolutely incomprehensible and astounding and humbling. Like it says in Romans 5.11, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. You move from having a hostility with God to rejoicing in God. You can think of God's presence with joy now. So may we respond to our Father that way and our brother, Christ, with a heart of thanksgiving and praise and love. Let's pray. Our Father, we look to texts like this and are full of gratitude. You have done a marvelous thing. And we are so grateful. Be with us now in this final part of our service where we proclaim together the death of Christ at the Lord's table. May we think again of your great reconciliation and praise you for it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.